Okay, I am here with artist Alan Pollock. Uh, Alan, maybe you can tell us uh, where folks can find examples of your work to get acquainted with you. Well, uh, alanpollock.com, A-L-A-N-P-O-L-L-A-C-K. Um, that would be the best spot. I actually just revamped the whole site not too long ago, so okay. it looks more uh, up-to-date. It was looking kind of old for a while there, so... <laughs> That's my. I think my, sometimes my site can get a little bit dated, even if it's, and it's a blog. So you know, you do the math, you know. But um, where did you? How did you get your start in uh, illustration? Well, um, I originally uh, acquired an agent in New York City, um, and so I guess that's where I first started getting work. Um, it wasn't really in the same genre as, as, as I am now with science fiction and fantasy. It was um, because it was a kind of like a, a large ad agency type of a house that uh, they must, they represented over a hundred artists, you know, so it's, uh, they didn't really gear me towards anything, they were just kind of trying to get work for everybody, so I picked up like a teen, like a young adult kind of a, you know, cover and uh, some children's book cover, and then, but I did get, end up getting a magic, uh, the gathering novel paperback which was nice but then shortly after there I, I uh, started getting work for um, for Dungeon Magazine and uh, Dragon Magazine so that was that was I, I consider that more the beginning of it than, than the other in the was that something that, given the, the price points that are kind of typical in our little market here, did the, uh, the agent have much to say about that transition, or did they simply drop you, or did you continue a relationship with them? Well, I mean, it, it seems that when you're when you're when you have an agent, or say you're you're looking for an agent, there's like certain things that you worked out with them ahead of time. Some agents want um, want a cut of clients you already have which I don't think is right. Um, and then others uh, just say up front, you know, um, you know, they're going to get a certain cut from every every job that they get you kind of thing. But um, the agents that I've had um, allowed me, if I got work outside of what they were getting me, that was okay. As long as we didn't cross paths, you know, that would, that would be an issue. But um, so otherwise it, it was okay. So as long as you weren't soliciting their clients. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't want you to kind of like get in there and get it, you know, get a better price and kind of, you know, take work away from them, so to speak. So, but, uh, I, and I didn't, I, you know, and I, I eventually ended up getting a staff position for TSR, you know, Guns and Dragons. So, uh, before I took that, you know, I told my agents, and, you know, let them know that I was moving on kind of thing. No. No fantasy is something you've always wanted to do, and uh, I don't know that I'd say I always wanted to do it. I mean, I, I uh, when I was younger, I always liked uh, horror more than anything. Uh, you know, old black and white science fiction, you know, horror movies from the oh, yeah. way back when. You know, Godzilla and Frankenstein and Invasion of the Body Snatchers and all the old black and white movies. Um, so I always liked that kind of thing, but I didn't. Um, I, I can't say that I, I uh, always wanted to be a fantasy artist because they really didn't. I guess I mean to say genre artist. Uh, but, yeah, I mean uh, fantasy, horror, science fiction. Yeah. But I didn't know I, I didn't know I wanted to do that for a living until I was probably in my early twenties. So, you know, some of your first work was for Magic the Gathering. What are some of your uh, what are your current projects? Uh, well, I'm still doing book covers. Um, 
and I'm still doing stuff for Magic. I'm still doing stuff for Warcraft. Um, I do a lot of commission work. Um, and just, I get a lot of odd things that pop up, you know, little gaming projects, or I just did a, a label for a, a local winery. So, you know, I like doing different things. I like getting work that, you know, CD covers and, you know, things like that. You know, I've never done a stamp <laughs> or a puzzle. You know, there's things like that that I think would be fun. But um, but at the moment, you know, I'm, I'm keeping busy. So, And I'm trying to do, I've been doing so much digital work over the years. Um I, I miss painting, so I'm trying to get back in there, especially doing conventions like the LuxCon, you know, where everybody ups their game every year, it seems, and they're doing paintings for a LuxCon. I'm trying to do more originals for that show. So, Have you found that uh, working in the digital environment informed your oil paintings or, and vice versa? Or? In, informed? Yeah. How did working has, has working digitally also changed your... Uh, has it changed your oil painting style, for instance? Um... I don't know that it changed it. I mean, I I, um, I, I actually learned how to do it from, from Todd Lockwood. Um, I didn't know. Uh, he once sent me one of his one of his earlier digital images, and he, he sent me a JPEG, and I loved it. And I said, wow, that's, you know, that's great, you know. And he said, yeah, it's digital. And I said, wow, like, it looks like you painted it. And he's, so, and that was the first time I was introduced to, you know, Corel Painter and, uh, and then he, he sent me a disc of, of a step-by-step on how he did it and with all the brushes on the screen and everything so I could kind of get an idea of how, how to get started. Um, and I wanted to learn only because, you know, as the industry changes and people start maybe wanting more digital than, than not, that I would be able to keep up, you know, with that demand. But uh, so it's fun. Uh, I, I don't know that it actually changed anything. The only thing is, is that you can do some quick color studies and it, you know, in that sense, it helps you, um, get ideas out quick, quick color studies. And the thing that I like about it is that, especially if you're, if you're drawing, you can, uh, change things really quickly. You can do things on layers and you can, you know, take, take the image and shift it left or right. You, you know, you have a drawing, it's kind of hard to take the whole image and shift the figure or shift an arm, you know, and digitally you can do that. So it's great for that kind of thing, you know. Sure. We've sometimes talked about how um, having at least the, the ability to get your files to a client in a digital format is important, but I think it's certainly important to be able to retouch work as necessary and to make changes on the fly. And having that comfortable, being comfortable with the tools can be so beneficial yeah. when you're working in any market like this. Yeah. Um, now, I noticed that you've, uh, you're, you got yourself a cover for Spectrum a few years back, and uh, I wanted to ask you how that went down. Well, uh, it was actually uh, for a book called In, Con- In the Country of the Blind. Um, it was uh, the book itself was um, uh, kind of like a set ten years in the future, so it wasn't a very sci-fi kind of a book. There was nanotechnology. There was a bunch of things that were hard to illustrate to make because a lot of times when you do a science fiction book they want it to look science fiction and sometimes the story doesn't lend itself visually to you know hard science fiction kind of kind of imagery um so when i read the book i i uh, i had a hard time with it i wasn't finding any i usually look for a scene or get in a, you know some characters and you know things like that that i can latch on to and i i was having a hard time with it so i ended up uh coming up with a scene from the book that I thought would work and it just wasn't you know I was, wasn't real thrilled about it and it was late at night and I went to bed and 
was having a hard time, you know, that I sent it to him and I was not real excited about it, which is never a good thing. And when I woke up in the morning, you know, I just was felt like, you know, I want to do something more conceptual. And, um, you know, at that time, uh, I was looking at a lot of John G. Palancar's work, and I love his work. And, uh, you know, and just felt like, you know, he's always doing this. He doesn't necessarily do scenes. He does a lot of very conceptual, surrealistic kind of imagery. And I'm, I just felt like, why can't I do that? You know, why do I have to do a scene all the time, you know? So that's, that's when I woke up that next morning, that's how I started to think about it. And I started thinking about the imagery in the book and everything. And I very quickly put together the sketch that I really liked, the composition, the idea, some of the imagery with it. And once I sketched it out, then, you know, I immediately sent it to them because I had sent the, ske- the other sketch early, late that night. And so it was still early in the day. And I sent it to them. And I said, forget that other sketch. I want you to see this one. This is the one I think we should go with. And it's a horizontal image, which on a book cover is kind of strange. But it was for tour books, and they were very good at letting artists just kind of do what they want as far as, you know, they don't want to hold back the creativity. So, um, yeah, I came up with it. They liked it. And then I painted it at the time. Uh, I was trying to get work with this particular book company, and I had an agent, and at the time, the, the, the comment to the agent from this book company was, I don't do enough, you know, large figures, you know, the figure's not the focus, and they were concerned about my figure painting, so that particular one was driven by a solid, big figure, and not only that, but I did the painting three feet by four feet to kind of bring it to them and be like, see, figures, <laughs> no problem, <laughs> and so I did the painting, and it went over really well. And, uh, you know, not only did I sell the painting very quickly for, for the most money that I've sold the painting for, um, but in a very short amount of time when I entered it into Spectrum, uh, I received an email saying, hey, you know, just letting you know that your, your painting is in the running for the cover. And I, I was like, okay. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I should be excited or if it was just... A fake email. I, I mean, I couldn't even believe it because, I mean, you know, it was it was Spectrum 8. I mean, there's only been eight issues. Tons of top-of-the-line best artists in the industry in the book. And, they, you know, I hadn't really even been in the book, I think, more than once at that point. So I was, like, really kind of shocked and didn't really believe that it was a real email, you know, that I was in the running. And then I wanted to be excited, but I tried to hold back. And then when they told me that I got it, I was like wow, I don't know what to say. So, yeah, definitely a feather and a cat. So there's definitely there's a, there's a lesson in there in, in that. Uh, would you say that this at this time this was a just... What kind of, do you feel it was a brave decision to resubmit a sketch in, the, in such a different treatment? Or it was tour? Well, then again, as you say, it was tour, and they were very open to your ideas. Yeah, I mean, I've done that before where I've, you know had a sketch and I thought it was good you know a lot of times it's like you know you have a deadline and you're trying to get it in and you have this idea and you're like I got to get this submitted you know and and uh but you know you want to do your best work and and you know if you're not really excited about the sketch um the painting's going to suffer definitely um so you know and I think at that point I had just done enough book covers with the same approach that I just wanted to do something different you know I grew up you know, following guys like, you know, Michael Whelan, who's just a master at capturing 
a scene from the book. And not he doesn't do it now, but I mean, in his earlier days, he would capture a scene and capture the character. And you know, and I just think that that's awesome. You know, that he can capture you know the flavor of the book and the scene from the book. And for me, like growing up with album covers and looking at books, I mean, that's what's that's what always drove me to buy the book was was the cover. And so if I like the cover and I'm reading the book, I always wanted to look back at the cover and say, oh, that's that character and that's that scene. And that's what got me excited about wanting to read the book. And, you know, whether the book was good or not, that's, that's the whole point is to try to get people to buy it. Um, so, so doing a conceptual, you know, cover to me was, I don't know, I just wasn't used to doing thinking about it that way. So, uh, but it was nice to be able to do it, you know, to push it that direction. Uh, see, that's very exciting. You, you, you outside of your initial your, your initial comfort zone, and it paid off in a yeah. really in a huge way. Yeah. yeah. Any, I, I was going to ask you what you think some of your best uh, best advice you might offer to somebody just getting started, and it sounds like that's a, a pretty good piece yeah, right there. I mean, you know, it's it's different now than when I got started. I mean, when I got started, you know. The, you know, I was always told to try to get work, you know, get interior work, do pen and ink work. I was never really too, too good at pen and ink, so I never went that, that road, down that road. But um, for me, it was, it was I got a, a, you know, Dungeon Magazine cover right off the bat, and then I did in some interior work for them. But um, I think when you see a lot of people that come around, a lot of younger students that come around, you know, a lot of it is just uh, they haven't honed their skills yet, you know. Then, you know, coming to the conventions like this is great because you get to see uh, some of the best painters out there do their thing. You know, even just now I was watching Justin Sweet over there and oh, yeah. amazing, you know. I mean, it's just, you well, know. I was you, ogling indecently myself. Yeah. <laughs> when I was standing there, it's like we're watching a beautiful young girl just roll, man. Was, hey, look at that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, he's just, you know. And I'm not used to painting live like that. So uh, seeing how someone that knows how to do it well, watch him was great. But, you know, um, nowadays so many people do digital, you know, and that's, you know, I like I said, I, I went down that road too. And, and I think it's, I do think it's important because uh, you want to keep up with the times, you know. Um, but it still comes down to the basics. It still comes down to drawing and color and composition and, you know, conceptual work. A lot of people that, are, that were in the book covers full-blown have now moved on to doing, you know, conceptual work and video game work and movie work. I mean, there's there's a lot of work out there, but you you got to be somewhat versatile and, and uh, you know, you're never good enough. I mean, that's just never the case. So you're always going to find every time you come to a convention like this, you uh, you always see something that someone else is doing, whether they're younger or older, that you can't not that you can't do, but that you haven't tried or or um, styles that are so far away removed from what you do but but you learn and you try to incorporate it into your style or into what you do you try something different next time you you know you sit down to paint so it's like it's a room full of people who just see the work of others that they really would like to do <laughs> you know well, it's amazing because no matter how good some of these people are, you, you know, they talk about other artists in the show as being so much better than them, you know? It's amazing. You know, you know, Donato is one of the best guys, you know, and, and, and he still looks at other people and says, oh, man, the way that that guy does this and that, the way his skin tones and the way the action and the, the, the mood. And I mean, you would think almost that, you know, you see somebody at that level uh, of Donato Giancola or 
Michael Whalen, you know, you know, or Justin Sweet, and it, they wouldn't look at anybody else and think like, oh, he's what he's doing is so amazing, you know, because they're already there. But they never feel like they're there. You know, you you can't feel like you're there. You have to always feel like you can improve. You know, so. I, I know folks have heard this before, but what I like about uh, IlxCon is that it takes place on the first floor. Because after one lap around this room, maybe a half hour in, I just want to hurl myself out a window. <laughs> so it's really handy that you're only going to fall a couple of feet. You may get you may get bruised a little bit, but you know you'll survive the encounter and yeah. you move on. You know. <laughs> but, uh, hey, thank you so much for speaking with our listeners. My That's pleasure. great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome to episode 120 of the Ninja Mountain Podcast, the podcast for artists and by artists. Ninja Mountain is a loose collective of fantasy sci-fi artists who like to talk about the art and business of freelance illustration. Ninja Mountain is a proud member of the Visual Artist Podcast Network. On the panel this week, we have Sokar Miles. At Gorblimey.com. Drew Baker. Hi, I'm Drew at DrewBaker.com. Kieran Yanner. Crickets. Crickets. I'm Kieran Yanner between banging at KieranYanner.com. Kieran <laughs> getting banged! Yay! You heard it here, folks. We're very topical. <laughs> and I am Jeremy McHugh, and I can be found at McHughStudios.com, and I'll just take this opportunity to welcome the latest ninja to our mix. That's my son, Ronan James McHugh, more born March 5th, 2013. He's a cute Does little he a mic? No, no yeah. mic. He's, a, he's, he's with his mom trying to huh? stay quiet. Right, sure. <laughs> the uh, you know, just on that personal note, you know, being a new dad, I'm, I can see it's going to be a, a bit of a learning curve and how to I don't how do artists balance the uh, the many hats they must wear between being a dad and a uh, an illustrator who works from home and you know those little things. I'll be Mr. Mom pretty soon because my wife my wife will be returning to work in the afternoons. Well, I think you will make a wonderful mother. Why, thank you. <laughs> it's those childbearing hips. That's right. They, they sway to and fro as I walk around the apartment. I, you just need that. And every, everyone needs that visual. Thank you for that. It will be in my brain for the rest <laughs> of my life. <laughs> I'll, be walk, I'll be the person that answers the door in a, in a, in a, like a terry cloth robe and, and dirty slippers and hair rollers. You know, Just bouncing a baby on my, uh, on my chest. That'll be me. And that'll be, you know, two in the afternoon. Very attractive. <laughs> I think you teach your baby slobby habits. Oh, man. You know, uh, just one second. I think I have one other individual who'd like to join our merry band. Well, from the Yes, from the, from the internets. I believe we now have Patrick McAvoy. Yay! Dun-dun-dun-dun, Patrick. Where are you, Patrick? Oh, he's Patrick. playing his guitar again. Oh, there I am. Ah, <laughs> yay! Where were you? We were waiting for you. I was building up the suspense. He's the Jake Tar Elwood. Well, that was that was very um, that was very um, uh, suspenseful. No, I, I I really don't like that word. It's not a real word. Nobody should say suspenseful again ever. I think we need almost like a 30-second long drum roll <laughs> until Patrick actually <laughs> chimes in. Tension-inducing or uh, um, uh, nerve-wracking or uh, spine. 
tingling. Yo, waiting for you, man. It was like that scene from that radio drama. Guaranteed to keep you in. <laughs> Actually, I, I love that one. Talking about it, re- it reminded that, me that. of that uh, of Monty Python, the Holy Grail, and that scene where they're uh, you just see King Arthur and his, they're running across a field through a, and they're being watched through a spyglass, and yes. the running scene takes like five minutes, and they never seem to get any closer. Until he finally kills the guy. <laughs> that was kind of what I was. That's what I was experiencing. Waiting for you to talk. It was kind of like. Well, that that is a good a good uh, bit of knowledge there, Sokar, because I think every uh, every artist who works at home on uh, long crazy hours and needs different techniques to keep awake should know about old time radio, especially shows like Suspense. Yes. And the and inner sanctum mysteries because there are hundreds of those things available to stream online for free and and they will keep you awake for hours and hours with their cheesy suspense. Old time radio. <laughs> yeah, this is like this is um Twilight Zone radio dramas now. Uh, you can get them on your iPad or iPod. But you have to pay for those, but a few of them are free. Um, I got them. I ended up buying them all because I'm. Stupid. <laughs> what was the one you were saying? Which one did you say? Uh, suspense, Twilight Zone, radio dramas. Um, what other Inner, san- Inner Sanctum Mysteries. Oh, That's yeah, there's another one. one. Inner Sanctum Mysteries. Do they also feature some of those original uh, advertisements? Did you ever listen oh, to like oh, uh, yeah. Camel Tea for Taste, you know, sort of thing? And <laughs> <laughs> the old cigarette commercials? Inner Sanctum, I think it's it's either Inner Sanctum or Suspense, uh, always had, uh, or not always, but for a couple of years, had this Roma Wines. And it was really great because they're trying to convince Americans of the uh, 1940s that you should should drink wine with dinner. It's not just for fancy Europeans, it's for regular (laughs) folks like you. Oh my God. And now everybody in America has, wait, do they? I don't know what Americans have with dinner. Heck, we never stopped drinking wine around here. Really? I thought it was just soda. <laughs> a bunch of booze hounds over there. Oh, man. <laughs> exactly. I thought Americans like beer more. Oh, uh, you, know, you know, the thing is, you know... It's what, regional. <laughs> I'm, I'm playing it in my mind. In my mind, I'm thinking for my uh, the, the schedule I'm going to have to start maintaining. We'll call for a lot of early morning hours so that I can be free in the late afternoon into the evening. Because there's no way I'm going to be able to work with this little guy. You know, bouncing around on my on my knee, it's uh, it's gonna, it's gonna be oh, a little. Oh, oh, you're talking about you, you I know thought he's... you were talking about your penis. I'm sorry. Oh, oh no, Patrick. <laughs> no, no, no. I was talking about the results, the results of having one, and um, he's a cute little kid, but he's you gonna know... be requiring a lot more. He's gonna require a lot of attention, so it's gonna be tough for me to uh, to actually work. Um, when it's just me and him in the apartment. So it sounds like I'm going to have to be one of those early morning kind of guys and, and work to the early afternoon and call it a day. This is what I'm thinking. It might end up being that way. And so I just can't imagine myself. It's going to be very tough getting into the mold of uh, working from 7 to 3 kind of thing. You know, here's a thing you might think about. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it still exists, but when I was a baby, there was a product you could buy called a Jolly Jumper. Mm-hmm. And... and you, I guess it's kind of like a little harness chair, like when you're rock climbing, only it's on elasticy strings, and you hang it up somehow, and you put your baby in it, and when your baby wriggles, it's 
this thing supposedly bounces your baby around. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar and, with these things. The, the thing is that those are, I think those are usually hung in doorways. I don't know where you hang them. I think, I think ours was hung from a window somehow. Uh. I don't know. I, I just remember it because my mother always talked about this thing because uh, apparently I would just sit in it staring at whoever else is in the room and not moving at all. <laughs> just cross-eyed and drooling. <laughs> I was more of like a creepy, intense stare until <laughs> until one day my mother was going through the radio and like a rock and roll station came on and it was really loud and I suddenly jumped and that was the only time I ever broke my creepy staring to jump. <laughs> but I think most babies will understand that they're supposed to bounce. I was just never physically... You know, I've never been a very sporty person. I guess even as a baby, I was a bit of a potato. <laughs> I just hang there and stare creepily. Uh, Drew, what are your suggestions, man? You you have a, quite the uh, burgeoning family. Uh, I have no good advice. No, I have. <laughs> Didn't you once say something about putting them on your back, Drew? Like you had uh, a baby on your back and you were working. I I may have. I know I've held babies while painting. I know I've held well at least one. At a time, not like, not like all of yeah. them. There, there's a picture of me holding my son while I. You never had like, like a bandolier of babies just strapped to your ever, chest. Yeah, no. As long as you <laughs> no, can. No, get... would trust me that far. I'm not sure why. I think as long as you can get like some kind of apparatus to strap it to your body so that you're not, you know, using up all your arm strength to hold up the baby, mm-hmm. you could probably still draw or paint with a baby attached to you. True. True. I've, I, my, my brother gave me a uh, what's called a baby Bjorn sling. It's one of those things that straps to the, the front so a little guy can be – you can either have him facing you or you no, can have him facing that. the world kind of like, kind of like Quato from Total Recall. You know? Don't have them face you because little, really little babies puke a lot, and if he face you, he'll vomit. But if he they face don't them, actually all puke. It's it's really not near. Really? Well, maybe <laughs> my experience is anomalous, but leave it to Sokar to uh, get to the vomit. My, my little sister, on her very first day of being alive, vomited on me. The very first day, and now yes. she's your agent. Yes, and now she's my agent. She's just trying to make up for it. She went from vomiting all over me to representing me quite she, effectively. She feels so. that she hurt the quality of your relationship that day. And, Not uh, just that day. She also, you know what she did to me this one time? She pretended she was going to vomit and sat outside my door for hours while our parents <laughs> weren't there. Because I have this horrible phobia of vomit. And she knew <laughs> that if she just sat outside my door making vomit noise and pretending she was going to vomit, that I would be trapped in my bedroom for hours. And I was not only in my bedroom, I was hiding under my desk in case she tried to break in and, and vomit on me. Wow, you really do have an evil sister. Well, it was probably revenge because one time when she was really little, she she got stuck in the center of a group of thistles. Mm-hmm. And I was walking by and I said to her, oh, those are deadly poisonous. <laughs> and then I didn't come back all day. So oh, I, my God. Kind of, yeah, we didn't. No, Jeremy, let me, let me get back to your question. Sure. I have also recently switched over to a very early morning schedule, getting up at 6 and trying to have a, a work day in by early afternoon. Sure. And it, it's made a big difference. It's made life better. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm actually looking yeah, forward I, to trying it. A, a 15 minute 
my, my schedule broken down into 15 minute increments like these first three hours I'm supposed to be in the studio and then I'm supposed to deal with office work like emails and, and whatnot and then I'm supposed to do this for half an hour and then I'm supposed to go down for lunch for half an hour and then I'm supposed to come back to the studio and I have that printed on my schedule on a good day I'll carry that around with me in my shirt pocket and uh, keep track of what I've done with my time where I've used it and and then have because those those chunks of time are color coded and printed on the schedule if I'm befuddled or lost I see a visual reminder oh this is my studio time I need to go to my studio mm-hmm. and that's that is really that's really smart it's because... it's opened me up to having free time when I'm you know after dinner with my family because this is the time that I'm supposed to be uh, not worrying about work but dealing being with my family uh, I recommend that, trying that at least. Yeah, I can, at the it's moment, I can see a, I can see a lot of coffee in my future. Yeah, uh, just, I think but so. I, uh, that is a I think that's that sounds like a very attractive lifestyle you've just described. So I, I like the fact that he's got it broken down not just into you know be, like uh, between eight and five I'm working, but he also puts you know um, well fifteen minutes here I I go and eat or I have break because what I end up doing is because my work day is between 8 in the morning and 5 p.m. and every day that's a weekday I'm working during those hours but you know I don't really have a specific time set aside for lunch so what ends up happening is I lose track of time and I get up at the end of the day and nearly collapse from hunger mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've, I've started wearing a watch uh, I don't even have a watch. Yeah. That's... I dug out the one I had in college. <laughs> yeah, I, I may have to get a watch because <laughs> otherwise I'll just be looking at my cell phone, and then my cell phone is just a—it's uh, a wonderland of distractions because it's a smartphone. And uh, oh, maybe I'll check my email, or maybe I'll <laughs> do this that, and the other. No, anybody who's been playing um, what was it Word with friends with me knows that uh, I get a play, and I'll just tap through it real quick. Oh, yeah? You play Words with Friends? Oh, yeah. I challenged you, in fact, but you totally snubbed me. I did? Totally. I think you fear me. You fear my vocabulary. I I don't. It's just that I don't (laughs) play on Facebook. I play it on my iPad. Well, I play it on my phone, so... Oh, I I didn't know you. I didn't know you requested it to me because I wouldn't have snubbed you. I would have played with you. See, I was walking around all smug. That's right. I don't want to mess with this. That's right. Oh, no. I'll play with you sometime. (laughs) There you go. I'll, I'll find you. But anyway, yeah, I think I think Drew has the right idea. I mean, I'm so bad at this. I'm so bad at scheduling. <coughs> One time, there was a small power cut, and all the clocks in my apartment are digital, like the microwave and oven clocks. So they all stopped. And mm-hmm. so I got up at eight o'clock in the morning because my iPad didn't stop, obviously, because that's on a battery. So my iPad alarm woke me up at eight o'clock. I go to work all day. All day, I'm looking over at the microwave clock, and it says 2.30. (laughs) Now, listen to how long it takes me to understand that the clock is wrong. At 9.30 p.m., I start thinking my back hurts more than normal. Boy, it's really dark for 2.30. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's totally dark outside, and I haven't noticed because the shutters are closed. I I have not noticed that, that... Somehow I have gone through lunch time and dinner time, and it's now 9.30 at night, and I've been working since 8 in the morning. <laughs> and I have not noticed that the clock is wrong. 
Oh, I've had I've had times like that where you're just working, you get in a groove, and you'd never look up. I remember when I was in school, a dude was watching me work on a uh, on a plate for printmaking, and I looked. I finally looked up, and he looked at me and said, "Dude, you have not looked up from that plate in two hours." And uh, you know, I was just like, "This is me, like bent over <laughs> little table, just tapping away with little stylus." I have to stop like every three hours or so now because. Um, what I do now while I'm working is I put Netflix, you know, I, I start at the beginning of a series and I just, I, just I just, binge. I just binge the whole time I'm working. Like, I, you know, I've watched so many series without knowing what any of the actors look like. Because, like, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you're working on something visual. Obviously, you're not looking at the TV. Like I could not tell you what the main guys in Nip Tuck or um, <laughs> or Breaking Bad look like. You just know their voices. I know their voices, and you know I, I sometimes wonder to myself how many little visual hints and gags have I missed? Because after the season finale of last season of Breaking Bad, I was reading on the internet that uh, you see Walter White. Spoiler alert. Uh, anyone, who, <laughs> anyone who doesn't know what happens, don't listen to me. Anyway, at the Turn end off of the, now. At the end of the last season, apparently, you see Walter White sitting in his backyard, and you see that he's got the plant that poisoned the little kid growing. And I didn't see that, so I didn't yeah, know that Yeah, you'd have he, never known that there was anything happening at the end. I That's not I would not have known that happened. I mean, I would, I would have guessed that Walter White probably did it. But I would not have seen the actual visual confirmation that he did it. You'd, if, you'd have ended up the season thinking, wow, that Walter White's a pretty good guy. I guess there's hope for him yet. <laughs> well, he, he's a pretty awful guy. You don't need to see what he did. But, you know, I was reading on the internet that he he was definitely guilty of the poisoning. I was like, oh, when, when, did, when did he admit to that? And it's like, oh... And I'm like wondering how many little visual cues in series that I've watched from beginning to end I totally missed. <laughs> oh well, you know, oh, I'm not gonna. I'm probably never gonna watch it because so much TV is just crap. Like I've watched so much absolute garbage because I've run out of good stuff to watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've got a. Uh, I actually have a listener question. Yeah, so yeah. it was a series of. We, actually, we have listeners. We, okay, we, we still we have listeners. A listener. Yeah. We have a single listener who's actually we waited have a this long. From our listener. <laughs> from our listener. <laughs> oh, let me just. Yeah, I, I think I should uh, issue we, a. We should go to our listener's house for the next episode. We should just. Go. <laughs> Coming at you live from our one and only. Why? Listener. That's right. Why record this at all? We'll just. Uh, we'll just. <laughs> We'll just perform it in their yeah. living room. Some people yeah. call it a conference call. We'll, we'll call it a podcast. We'll just show up. <laughs> I, should, I probably feel, I feel, oddly enough, I do feel like I should apologize for the lack of episodes coming out lately, but I hope people will understand that uh, I think I'm, at the moment, we're all pretty busy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I, lately, it's, uh, well, obviously, being a new dad, it's been a lot of uh, late nights and early mornings. And I don't know what it's like to sleep eight hours at a stretch um, anymore. It's going on two months. And that's, uh, that's an experience that most parents can, uh, or certainly most parents can uh, appreciate. <laughs> but um, for our one listener, she did have a question. Our, our own Chantal Fournier had asked, uh, this is, I'll just read what she had asked us. I have a suggestion that might be a small tangent from the habitual topic, but what about fandom? 
What is the ninja's relationship to fandom? Are you big fans yourselves? Did this have an influence on your career choice or on what kind of clients you try to get? Do you have activities that are related to geek fandom that are unrelated to art careers? And what do you think of uh, what do you think of fan? Oh, what do what do they think of their fans and how do they view their relationship to other artists they are fans of? What is the value of fans and does it relate to actual work or income or advantages other than vanity? Okay, this is a lot of questions. Actually. But, all, this, but if you break yeah. it down, is it kind of if you simply put, how is our own how is being a fan how has that affected our work? And how do we relate to our fellow fans or and fans of our own work? Well, what if we just try to boil it down to yes or no? Yeah, we're fans. <laughs> we're fans. I, I, think, I don't know. Sometimes. Sometimes. I'm about a sometimes. Can I get a sometimes? <laughs> Can yeah, we get sometimes? No, we yeah. like absolute statements, man. There's no gray. Black yes. and white, I man. I like fans. <laughs> yes. I got a birthday card from fans. That was very nice. Thank oh, you, Diana and Greg. That is cool. And Darren and Alita. I think I once got a piece of original. Yeah, I once got a piece of original art sent to me by a fan. That was very touching. I That's like. Cool. I still have it. I still have it. I was very touched by it. I don't have anything hung up on my walls, or that would definitely be hung up on my wall. But um, yeah, I, um, I, I think uh, we. You know, I've been a fan of illustrators since I was a little kid. Like. Um, uh, when I was maybe, uh, I think, three years old, I got a um, copy of The Wind in the Willows illustrated by Michael Haig, who is, like, I think the first person in of any sort of person that I would, like, and he's the first person I was ever a fan of mm-hmm. that I could, like, you know, name. And, and uh, I remember that... Um, after I got that book, as a really, really tiny mite of a kid, whenever I got to go to the bookshop, um, look through the children's books, and I look for his name to see if I could get more books with his illustrations in them, because I was a huge fan of Michael Haig. I had The Wizard of Oz with his illustrations, and um, I had... Uh, the Hobbit with his illustrations, and I think a bunch of uh, Peter Rabbit stuff with his illustrations. I just had so many stuff with his illustrations. I loved him. I wanted to be just like him. Um, (laughs) 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 I I, I really liked him. And and so I guess I didn't really know about fandom at that age because, you know, I was like a little kid with no TV. So um, I didn't know about, like, fandoms and you know Star Trek I think had big fandom at that time but um, I didn't know about that kind of stuff but I definitely knew I liked this illustrator and then I got older and I, I found some other illustrators I really liked as well so I've I've been a fan of illustrators for a really long time and um, the funny thing is I have been so intimidated by the particular illustrators that I've been such a fan of for all these years since I was a little kid that I've never spoken a word to any of them. Like um, when I wanted Michael Haig to let me use one of his illustrations in my uh, fantasy art drawing skills book, I didn't ask him. Um, I asked the um, publisher and the publisher asked him. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so that, that is, that's how much I put the illustrators that I'm a big fan of since I was a child up on a pedestal. I, I, I'm so tongue-tied I can't even talk to them. <laughs> <It's> so pathetic. <laughs> I have to say, I, my, my fandom usually relates to, to illustrators as well. And uh, I think early on it was comics. And I, you, you would never, I didn't necessarily follow any particular character of um, in comics. I usually followed particular artists, and I just kind of traveled with them as I moved across comic books and you know, different titles. So I, 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 you know, I like artists like John Romita Jr. I, and early on, I liked Jim Lee and all those. It was my, I came into comics more in the early '90s, so that was a whole image, of, you know, the image phenomenon coming out there and the boom market that's hit and things of that sort. But uh, over time, I also started paying a lot more attention to book covers and to um, and Dungeons and Dragons artwork was something that grabbed me quite a lot too. And so I'd be looking at guys like. Todd, no, Todd Lockwood and Brom and uh, people of that uh, of that ilk, and I was uh, definitely a fan of these people. And when I finally get to you know, there's over time I also finally got to meet them and find out they're also really nice people to chat with in person. And there, every once in a while, you know, you'll get that uh, tongue-tied. Oh my goodness, I don't quite know how to talk to this person. But I quickly got over that when I realized that they have to labor at what they do as much as I do, and that that kind of humanized them in my eyes. If that makes sense, you know, it's, when you yeah. start doing what it is they do for a living, the work that they that you love, you start to uh, feel a little less um, overawed by it. You know, you understand the process. You're just amazed at what they're able to do. I think it's just something. You know, artists I've become a big fan of that are my contemporaries. I will talk to, mm-hmm. become friends with. And, and and so forth. Like uh, some artists, I started off as a fan of, like um, uh, Stephanie Law, you guys, um, a bunch of other people um, I talked to, and, and and now we're more like friends and and stuff. So, you know, some people I started off as their fan, and I've even sold drawings to them. But something about people I've been a fan of. For literally as long as I can remember. (laughs) (laughs) Like some of my earliest memories are of uh, me and my mother sitting in bed together at the end of the day, reading the Wind in the Willows page about and looking at Michael Haig's illustrations. And, you know, these pictures of Ratty and Mole uh, and and the Piper at the Gates of Dawn and... uh, Badger's house under the wild woods, and I—I I, I don't know. There's just something about somebody who created my earliest childhood memories. How do you talk to the person who is responsible <laughs> for your happiest memories? Oh, the the other thing was, um, I kind of have—I can relate to that a little bit. I think just being um, approachable and outgoing can make a big difference because um, I remember. There are two instances where I met artists and I was, I found myself unable to really speak with them. And these are people's work I admire. One was, uh, and I've since overcome this, a little, at least with John Howe. He was one fellow I met at a Gen Con a few years ago. And I waited online and I, I think I got a signature of some, on something. But I was just, I was more or less tongue-tied, even though we've had a little bit of correspondence since that time. I was, he was somebody I felt I had difficulty talking to. And I think it's because he's just, he seemed at the time a fairly quiet, shy person, you know. So, a lot of artists are kind of shy, I think. Mm-hmm. 
like um, you know, I, I try to be accessible. You know, I I try to um, be nice if I have a fan and they talk to me. Oh yeah. You know, sometimes you, uh, you know, you 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 get if you get a lot of email or a lot of message, you, you know, you there isn't enough of you to spread around to everybody, and you feel really bad about that. I mean, you can't become friends with everybody, but mm-hmm. I think you can be nice to everybody. Oh yeah. Um, you can, you know, if someone says, "I love your art," you can say, "Thank you." If they take the bother to email you. Oh yeah, I, I've I've learned that email allows me to be a lot braver about approaching my art heroes. I remember when I was a, actually when I was a kid, I actually did a copy of um, John Howe's uh, Gandalf Leaving the Valley, mm-hmm. and uh, that's a painting that's actually been stolen uh, in the intervening years. But I, I found yeah, you know, really, Jeremy. Yeah, 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 you shouldn't admit in, that. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is one of those small worlds because it was a painting that I really enjoyed, and I remember doing a drawing of it as a kid. And then I find out years later it actually had been stolen while in transit to a uh, to the publisher or something. Oh, that's a pain. Yeah, but um, but that was a, another example of somebody who I had difficult. I couldn't really talk to. It was uh, Mike Mignola, and I met him very briefly at a Boston comic show. And uh, he, I think it was one of those situations where I was just um, either I was nervous or he had probably dealt. I was probably like the three thousandth person he dealt with that day, <laughs> so I probably wasn't really the <laughs> a highlight. And, they, you know. and sometimes, sometimes you know, the artist can be as tongue-tied as a fan too. I mean, oh, yeah. I've had people say something to me and I don't really know what to say. I mean, you know, getting a lot of effusive praise especially can be a little embarrassing, especially when you don't really agree with it yourself. Like if, mm-hmm. if somebody yeah, I, says, I had to get over that that modesty thing real quickly because it it doesn't come across very good if you're just ah you know shucks I really suck you know don't think yeah. no, 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 <laughs> see that doesn't say, look good you. oh yeah you can't, exactly. you can't say like oh no I suck because you know that you, you. that just makes you look like you're rooting for more praise or you, it makes you, you know, think that they have bad taste. <laughs> but, you know? but it's kind of embarrassing, you know, if somebody is looking at your work and and all you see is the mistakes in it, and they're telling you how much they love it, and and you wish you could see it through their eyes so that you could come up with a decent response, but you can't. You only see your work that you messed up. But I know I don't know. Sometimes years later, I look back at the drawing I did, and I I do see what people are seeing in it suddenly because I'm not so close to it and I kind of forgot where the mistakes are. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Drew's policy makes the best sense. Just say thank you, smile, and, <laughs> you know. You the, the thing is, because if you start saying, no, no, I'm terrible, you know, that basically yeah. tells the fan that they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, that's yeah. Pretty, it's pretty rude to accept a compliment badly. You have, yeah. to, you have to learn to... I, I remember oh. the, the first time I ever won something. I was a little kid. I was in a public speaking contest, and for some reason, I won. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. And I, then I went up and to get the medal, and I guess you were supposed to. But I was the first one who got called up because I won the, the uh, first category. And mm-hmm. I guess you were supposed to make a little speech, but what I did was I went up. I said thank. I said thanks. I grabbed it and I went back to my <laughs> for public speaking. <laughs> So I guess I never have been too good at uh, accepting that. But I think one thing that helps a lot is remember that 
we're all um who's the guy you said jeremy um mike mignola mignola yeah we're all mike mignola to someone um and then that argument applies in so many so many situations like um if you know if a famous artist is exploiting his fans in an unsavory way and people are like oh well it's fine because it's so and so and i would totally work for him for nothing oh yeah you can say well yeah but everybody's that guy to somebody and you don't see the rest of us uh, abusing our <laughs> and I'm not talking about so you're saying we should no I'm, I'm saying we shouldn't I'm saying we should not take advantage of our perceived status in the eyes of our fans in in, in any unethical way and I'm actually some people who are listening are going to think I'm pointing fingers at one person in particular, but I'm actually not. I'm specifically not pointing my finger at anybody in particular. I'm pointing my finger at several people who have all done the same thing recently. <laughs> <laughs> I, so, uh, oh, uh, go ahead. Uh. <laughs> I had. I was going to add. Uh, I was going to step back a step and uh, talk about uh, talk about me, yeah. which is a cool thing. You can uh, do it for days, really. I mean, <laughs> I haven't heard anyone talk about Patrick for far too long. Yeah, frankly. I think Patrick's the be- is the authority on the subject too. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, know. So. I know almost as much about me as uh, as uh, Sokar does. Um, uh, which... What? <laughs> <laughs> so uh no I, I was gonna go back to uh the the whole fan thing and uh yes i've always been a fan of uh of art uh comics and illustrators uh I, i'm a little older than you jeremy so when i was coming up uh comics art uh was Are really the things you carved on a wall yes yeah. exactly. <laughs> no it was really actually very bad so i sort of went earlier and got into comics artists like from the 60s and the 50s and the 40s but same thing you mean the 1960s 50s and 40s right (laughs) well yeah since we haven't haven't hit the 2050s yet okay and uh there weren't a yeah i was thinking more like further back like the 1860s 50s and 40s but you know know. those are tough years you know those are tough years in comics because they didn't exist and there were people <laughs> there were people just trying to break into the comics industry and they couldn't because there wasn't one it was awful days <laughs> I'm laughing so hard at that <laughs> so uh, the uh, uh, illustrators I, I liked uh, though were uh, yeah Frazetta and uh, Roger Dean and people like that but uh, yeah I was going to tell a cute little story which I may have told before but who cares who, who's listened to every single episode not many people who are still alive <laughs> <laughs> but at uh, Dragon Con several years ago I got to meet one of my all time favorite uh illustrators uh, roger dean and uh, for people who don't know him he did the yes album covers in the 70s and uh, just uh, well known for beautiful album covers for decades now and he was there at dragon con with a booth and he just turned out to be a spectacularly nice guy i was hanging out with uh stan morrison uh, another mm-hmm. artist uh, sure yeah he's he's a great guy um and we had both won awards at the art show. And we were out that night just uh, having dinner uh, with some friends. And Roger Dean actually saw us from another table and took the time to say, hey, it's the award winners. <laughs> Hi, guys. 
nice. and there, there's like my childhood idol actually knowing who I am, paying attention, and I just about died. So the next day, uh, yeah, he, uh, uh, we we were wandering. Me and Stan again were wandering around the uh, uh, convention floor at Dragon Con, and we stopped by Roger Dean's booth, and he, you know, he invited me behind the table with him to sit for a while. He, you know, his wife took a photo of both of us sitting there together. It was just the greatest moment of my life. So, yeah, I, I never stopped being a fan, and, um, you know, even though I was a professional, I was geeking out, and it was, it made, it made everything worthwhile. <laughs> You know, who cares about making a living or getting to do things you want? You know, you get to meet these people that you grew up idolizing and, uh, you know, you learn that they're great people also. And it's just a good feeling. I've had have, that. You, have you ever met someone you idolized as a child and they were a horrible person? No, no. Luckily, I, all of the ones I've had a chance to talk to uh, have been spectacular. They, they Every single uh, professional artists that I looked up to as a child or as an adult have turned out to be really, really cool people. You know, there are more cool people per capita in uh, comics and fantasy art than just about any other profession, I think. That might be true. I once met, I once met a scientist that I was a big fan of. Again, I'm not naming any names, <laughs> so, so don't assume you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Einstein. Once, Yes, I am old enough to have met Albert Einstein. I met a scientist I was a big fan of, and it turned out he was a huge racist. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, no, okay, no. I was very disappointed and sad. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know what to say. Oh, oh that is sad. I, I had the opportunity. No, and this is a this is a good this is a positive story. But I'm, I'm going to take it back in the positive side. I've been a fan of the Hildebrandt brothers for ages, and when I, I finally got to meet Greg at, um, at IllusCon, the past the past couple of IllusCons, well, I also I've, I ran into him at the um, uh, Art at the Edge exhibit that took place in Pennsylvania, and. I, one of the I, I have to if he's listening today I'd say one of my treasured memories would be hanging out with him over dessert with a gang of people just chatting I I know I've, had, I've talked about it with you guys off air you know some of the stories that he shared and I just uh, I kind of just grilled him for his experiences about what it was like early on you know working with his brother and all that and that was a, a rare experience that was a rare treat that sounds great so yeah and I was able to overcome my own uh, occasional shyness so. <laughs> but uh, how about you uh, who, who else do we got to pick on here Drew I fandom fan yeah yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm doing this fantasy art stuff because I grew up liking role playing games mm-hmm. uh, and so once I got out of college that's where I went and that's where I have generally stuck uh, I, I got to meet a lot of fans doing L5R art got to to realize that I really needed to learn their names, so I spent a few years trying to do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was at, at Gen Con, and and someone bought something from me, and I realized that yes, I had she had ordered things from me for three years in a row. I should really remember her name. Uh, so that that was the the catalyst for it. Her name is Leanne, actually. <laughs> and, <laughs> Um, but but they've they've been really supportive. I couldn't still do it if they hadn't uh, been supportive. And to 
now that I'm not doing it anymore, it's kind of sad to leave that supportive group behind. Hmm. Uh, but I, I'm moving on to other things again because fans there can support me, have been nice to me. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, a, a lot of the time we don't give fans enough credit, really, for, for what they do for us. I mean, you know, there's some people, they always come back and they say something nice about your art whenever they see a new piece. They, they buy stuff over the years. I mean, they really, they, you know, if nobody liked your art, it would be hard to keep your career afloat. And one thing I find annoying, I started a Tumblr recently and because everybody has one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, recently I posted one of my arts on Tumblr and it got like four reblogs. And then I noticed that somebody else had posted it and it got like 4,000 reblogs. <laughs> <laughs> Without my name attached. Uh, so why is somebody else posting it and suddenly 4,000 people like it but when I post it only 4 people like it they just have a bigger pre-established audience yeah. my, my fans are letting me down <laughs> your fans didn't know you had a Tumblr probably this other person has had one much longer and oh, been no. posting cool things this is, actually, this is actually not my fans fault it's just my fault I, yeah. I'm really bad at promoting myself you know, you know, it occurs to me having this conversation that I don't know if I've ever actually identified a fandom for me. You know, I have a handful of people I run into at shows every year, and certainly people who I, who I get to I, I correspond with online and, and interact with on places like Facebook and LinkedIn. But it occurs to me that I don't, um, I don't have, I don't believe I have what it's called an established fandom. I guess a lot of that tends to come with having something identifiable. Uh, I don't think most artists have a fandom. I think the only, you know, your intellectual property might get a fandom. Mm-hmm. Like if you, yeah. start a, if you start a comic and that would get a fandom. But I don't think most artists, like we're not actors. People don't really care what we look like so, yeah. or, and stuff. So I don't think we usually get fandoms, which I think is probably a good thing because you know what happens to people who have fandoms? No. People write real person fan fiction about them. And I, don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's this really bizarre phenomenon where people choose like an actor usually or a musician and they write stories about stuff happening to them and and like just stories about a real person, only this stuff that never happened. And a lot of it's really <laughs> disturbing stuff like them having sex with their brother or um or <laughs> Being oh my God! Violence. You oh. killed misery. Yeah, I, uh... <laughs> it's horrifying, and, and you know, I, I don't want to, if I ever have a fandom of me as a person, which I find extremely unlikely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess my art might have some fans, but if ever I get a fandom of myself as a personality, I just hope that nobody writes a real person fiction about me because I don't want to read about myself. In a nasty threesome with my sister. Ugh. Oh, I just gave myself the crawling skin. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've any. I don't. I don't think I'll ever be in danger of that. Um. <laughs> but that happens to famous people. That's what happens when you have a fandom of yourself. So hope that your fandom is for your intellectual property and not for you. Well, well here's the thing. I don't. I don't equate fandom with fame. I mean, let's face it, there are a lot of uh, artists who have fandoms, but no one knows who they are outside of our little uh, world. You know, I'm a fan of guys like uh, John Howe, Todd Lockwood, Brom, but these are not names, these are not household names beyond our little market. 
No, I know their art has a fandom. Yes, yes, that's 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 kind of where I'm taking the the term fandom. You know, fame and fandom are I I think are separate notions. I think I I think though like a fandom is like a collection of people who they get together and they obsess about (laughs) the art. I don't think it's just people who are fans. Mm -hmm. I think a fandom is something different. It's like a kingdom of fans. Like a, a fandom is more of you know the collection of people online who get to or or not even always online. I mean, before the days of online, there was already fandom for stuff like Star Trek, which uh-huh. was mostly through fanzines and stuff. And there were like fanzines for EC Comics, and th- that was a fandom. But I think uh, fandom is a collective of fans that are interacting with each other. Yeah. So okay. I think most people for their art would not have a fandom unless they're doing. Unless their art is, you know, an intellectual property that has, of its own right, a fandom. Like, if you created Batman, your art has the fandom. Your Batman has the fandom. Or if you have... Like, there's some webcomics that have a fandom. And, and, you know, people write fan fiction about it and stuff. So, and and they get together in little fan communities and they do cosplay of it. I think only once someone did cosplay of my art and they showed it only to me i think and to people on their tumblr i don't think they showed it to like other fans whereas if you were famous silkar people would be dressing up as you uh, at convention so, so basically they'd be dressing badly if they they'd be wearing ink stained clothes if they dress up as me <laughs> <laughs> or or they'd be wearing like last year's fashions that they got from beyond the rack at a massive discount <laughs> So, um, yeah, so basically if you dress like me, you dress badly. Yeah. So most people in the city are in my fandom, I guess, they dress badly. <laughs> oh, man. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think um, my own experience of what it's like to uh, being um, an artist and being a fan of other artists and what have you, I think, if anything, I'd say doing this podcast has given me more opportunity to meet my heroes than I suppose I'd have had otherwise. And how much of that is just giving you a pretext to start the conversation? Yeah, yeah I think that's part of the equation, honestly. I mean, I, yeah. I think I, I tend to interview folks whose work I've admired for some time. And um, that, that, just, that just tends to be where I'm at. Although I do interview folks whose work I might not be personally fans of, but I understand there to be a, um, a lot to be learned from this person. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a, I mean, that's another way I take things like that. Um, mm-hmm. I, th- I think my relationship with the people whose work I'm a fan of tends to be pretty cordial. And I think that's part of that has been because of uh, my involvement with our show. You know whose art has a fandom that should be here right now but isn't? Mm-hmm. Um, Anne, Anne, um, Anne. Uh, oh, yeah. Stokes, yeah. She had the awesomest idea, which I seriously wish I'd thought of. Um, she made a whole book of uh, her art and then tattoos people got of her art. Which yes. I thought was the most awesome yeah. idea because you know That's it is really it, it is really flattering you know when when people get tattoo of, of your art and they send it to you and they're like hey mm-hmm. I got a tattoo of your art and you're like yippee <laughs> and and so and then sometimes you just find it randomly on the internet while you're looking for a tattoo artist to cover up the bad tattoo you got when you were 14 and you see a tattoo that has your art and the samples of some tattoo artist's work and you're like wow that was weird. <laughs> but, <you know. laughs> But, Is yeah. that how that happens? I've wondered how to find something weird in my life. 
<laughs> Something weird can be in your life anytime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, sometimes it happens when you're not looking for something weird and it's just there. But, um, Do you, you know, who here has what they feel you know, has a, a fandom that helps to support them? I mean, I, I sell the odd painting here and there at a show, but you know, it's, I, it's not like I can produce a print run and say, I can expect to sell this percentage at this show because I have this kind of fandom, you know, that sort of thing. Does anybody here have a, if they want to share that, do they have what they feel to be a fandom that they can rely upon if they I'm release not, a product or a, or a new I'm thing? I'm not sure. I'm not well, really for sure. years, for years, I, I survived because L5R players bought prints. Oh, okay. Yeah. I... I can say that I have a few long-term customers that I can rely on to get at least one original or commission per year. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I don't know if that was really count as a fandom or just uh, long-time patrons. Um, I guess they must be fans if they buy so much art, but uh, they could also be buying it as gifts. I don't know what they're buying it for. I don't really know them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I do have a few people that I can count on. That's, but for just new products that I'm involved with, um, I can't really count on my fandom to buy it if it's not up their alley. Like they won't buy it just because I'm in it. Sure. I mean, I've noticed it's kind of a joke in my family that everything I touch turns to garbage, because uh, <laughs> well, because of my track record. One time I wrote a novel and it got um, accepted by a publisher, and she said she was going to send me a uh, advance immediately and so I was waiting for this advance and I paid off a lot of bills so I had no money and um, the advance never came and never came so I wrote back what happened to the advance and she said oh she's really sorry she had to file for bankruptcy right after no. like, right after accepting my manuscript so, um, so, so she accepts my manuscript and goes under and, and and that is just part of a uh, many failed projects that I've been part of. Um, so it's like everything I touch just turns to garbage. If you hire me to be part of your project, your project is doomed. Nobody's gonna <laughs> like, nobody will like your product because I was in it. She is ill omen. <laughs> yeah, I have. I have. I'm dragging. Um, I'm like Marley's ghost, dragging miles. <laughs> Bad luck chains behind me. Like you could hire if if um, anyone if Marvel hired me or is it is Batman Marvel or DC? DC. DC. Okay. And I'm so sick that it, you don't know that. I'm sorry. I'm just. Uh, <laughs> it really seems to be consistent with her character to me. <laughs> I don't know anything. This I didn't say we're shocked. Merely that I'm sick at uh, the notion. That's fair, that's fair. <laughs> if, if if DC hired me to do an issue of you know, like a one-shot of Batman, then suddenly nobody would like Batman anymore. People would be like, oh, Batman sucks. We hate Batman. What have we been doing all this time watching all this Batman? The franchise would just implode. <laughs> and, and you know, Superman, I could ruin Superman with my horrible, <laughs> horrible presence. No matter how successful your product is, like uh, if they had hired me to star in the Twilight movies, nobody would have gone to see it. <laughs> <laughs> like any, any, any IP, no matter how how profitable or how uh, well loved, bring me on, and it's over for you. <laughs> okay, that, that's probably not literally true. But <laughs> doomed, doomed. 
but there have been enough cases, although I guess when you think about it, who hasn't been on a project that didn't really succeed that well? But still, I mean, the very first professional assignment I got, uh, the company has now gone under. Well, several years later it went under, but... <laughs> <laughs> it took a while. It took a while. But you but laid it, the groundwork well, so... <laughs> I, I laid the groundwork for their ultimate failure. <laughs> Planted the seeds. Yeah, I managed to kill my my first company with my first project. Yeah, murderer. And accepted my finals and then went under. Actually, I wouldn't mind doing a a, um, a one shot Batman graphic novel just to see what people would think of Batman <laughs> done in my style, because I think I could actually do a really good Batman story. I think it would look great. Yeah, I, I think because I, I use so much ink, so it's really dark. <laughs> yeah, hey. I think. I think I could do an awesome Batman. Oh yeah. Hey, you know, you know, Drew. I actually have a, a a question. It's a shade of. It's kind of based on your previous answer with regards to having a fandom attached to L five R, for instance. Okay. Has having that fandom. I know. I realize you've moved on from that product line, but as having when having that fandom, and, and did it affect how much how hard you worked on any given card assignment? Did it have knowing that there was this fandom that was following your work? through this product line did it make you spend that extra hour at the easel did it make you do this uh, make you more self-conscious about what you were doing knowing uh, there was an audience beside an art director yeah yeah i i knew the, you know, the company wasn't paying me enough to put time into making the cards really good it was it was totally because i was going to be able to go to tournaments and go to conventions and and meet my fans and they were going to you know, they were going to pay for it it was totally subsidized all the art i did for that game was subsidized by the prince sales um, mm -hmm. and there that's one of the reasons i started oil painting is because i wanted to uh, address that market with not just prints but also with originals uh, actually did I answer yeah. your oh yeah no that's excellent no that's i kind of had a wake-up call recently um on, in that kind of uh, arena because I had sort of been selling my originals for pretty low price because uh, I viewed my originals sort of as the byproduct of creating an illustration <laughs> rather rather than a valuable commodity in and of themselves. So, you know, I was I would when I do a drawing, I would assume that the money was coming from a commission fees, b licensing throughout the years, etc. And so the original was really just sort of the leftovers, so I could sell that for next to nothing and nobody care but then you know i was posting something on facebook for like a hundred bucks and somebody was like i can't remember who it was now but someone who probably sells more originals than i do was like uh hey don't do that it's like just as bad as undercutting prices and commissions so stop it yeah. and i was like i was like hey that person is right originals actually do have some value and uh, so i started raising all the rates. Mm -hmm. That's a, a something I'm going to play with uh, this summer, is seeing what happens if I experiment with my original pricing. Mm. The pricings of my originals. It's, there, there seems to be kind of a dead zone for me for sales. Like, there's, there's uh, up to a few hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. Someone can save up and buy that. But Anyone with more money than that, uh, you know, there's there's a price range. Probably it feels like from about seven hundred to about eleven or twelve hundred dollars. That's that's dead. 
Hmm. Yeah, you know, that's, that's true. That's, that's too low for the people who have that much money? Yeah, mm-hmm. because some people... So, there's a certain um, mentality, a consumer mentality you get where... Um, you know, if you've bought a lot of comparable products and they, and they usually cost so much, mm-hmm. and, and then you see something that's less than that, you you sort of subconsciously think it's not as good. Like I've even yeah, noticed there's that. There's a, a strange perception of value that I think might be going on. So there is. I, I mean, I've that. noticed that. I've noticed that myself. Like if, if I'm looking through clothes and I, I see a dress and it's five hundred dollars, I'm like, well, what's wrong with it? Why is it five hundred dollars? And <laughs> And then I'm thinking, and then I think to myself, wait a minute, why on earth would I think a $500 dress is going to be objectively worse than a $1,200 dress? Maybe, you know, sometimes I even like the cheaper one better. Yep. And, but it there's still something in my mind, but, the, <laughs> <laughs> but there's still something in my brain that's telling me I want a $1,200 dress when maybe I don't even want it. And yep. I, I think that it's very deeply entrenched in our consciousness that there's some correlation between how much something costs and how worth having it is. Um, like I lowered the price on one of my drawings because a bird shat on it. Mm-hmm. And you know, my mother's like, well, you can't even see the bird shit. Why are you doing that? Not, <laughs> even, not, not even admit to the bird shit. <laughs> Make it like $1,200. <laughs> like I don't know. I mean, what if there was acids in the bird shit and it eats through the paper over the years? <laughs> but it's organic. Out manufacturing. <laughs> I it wasn't buffered properly. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I mean, original art does have its have its own value because there's only there is only one the one piece of it um, for every piece, and only one person can own it. And there's going to be a there's not an infinite amount of it because eventually you die and you don't create any more individual pieces. Hmm. I find that my original work doesn't have that much exposure, so it's tough for me to gauge uh, how well it would do if put out on an open market. Because I don't really have an open market, <laughs> you know. So I'm not sure where I could promote the sale of my originals beyond my website and Facebook. I'm not sure. Well, my sister you know. and I want eventually to start having some real-world shows for illustration because we mm-hmm. liked we liked the golden age of illustration which neither of us were actually alive for but where <laughs> things seem to be very good for illustrators they were considered you know they were given a lot more respect than they are now um and we would like to sponsor some real-world shows for uh for illustrators and show off their work and say hey this is actually art this is worth having you should buy this and put this in your living room because these illustrations are actually very beautiful. And when you think about it, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is just a giant illustration. Indeed it is. <laughs> yep. Poor and a lot of a so lot true. of the stuff a lot of the stuff people are considering great masterworks of the ages are illustrations by today's standard. So it's time that illustrators start getting more respect again and higher rates again and start selling our originals more. So when we have a bit more capital to play with, my sister and I want to sponsor some shows for illustrators to get their work out there and get them out to uh, art buying audience. So, so I we've got to get good, Jeremy, yeah. so we can get invited. There you go. <laughs> well, I mean, just two people having an art show for illustrators can't really change the entire perception of illustration, but we're hoping we can help it catch on and maybe help reintroduce a new golden age of illustration where illustrators get fair wages again 
and get a bit more respect again. Well, that's what we need to kind of uh, give a quick shout out to our friends over at uh, Art Pack. Oh yeah, we were just talking about that before oh, the good show. Good segue, Jerry. Yes, you like that done. one? Put that on, walk it around a little bit. Looks good. I like that one. Yeah, rolls the shoulders. Yeah, if anybody hasn't heard of Art Pact, uh, I think it's who's who's running the Jim Pavlik. I think I don't really know this guy. Jim well, and the, Randy Gallegos. Sorry, Randy, I probably butchered your last name. I'm terrible. No, that's correct. Gallegos. And, uh, Aaron Miller. I'm not sure mm-hmm. I know and any people personally. Yep. But I think I think they I've seen some of their arts. They look like they have pretty good arts, and um, they also have a good social conscience for our industry. And they've taken it upon themselves to make a project by which illustrators can get together and talk about um, money, basically, and fair treatment within the industry, which is a huge issue for us. Because um, I mean, let's face it: when you can get a, the when you can buy a thirty-year-old copy of the Graphic Artists Guild Handbook, and the pricings, you could still pretty much use them in today's market. That is not right. That is wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wrong. <laughs> I have to. Yeah, I I, have, I know I've started to raise my rates here and there, and that's been. I think that's a good uh, a good trend. <laughs> for me, I don't know if it's going to uh, how well that will keep me employed over time, but um, no, I mean, um, I, but you gotta you start know, somewhere. Illustrators' rates are so low that I mean, it's 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 just so bad. I mean, uh, when you look at um, my sister starting illustration agency for illustrators lately, and um. We also want to figure out a way to make this fair for illustrators and uh, instead of increasing how much percentage is taken over the years, we want to find a way to lower it because uh, if you have a writing agent, if you have an acting agent, they take less than an illustration agent. And one of the reasons for this, I believe, is that uh, for an illustration agent just to break even, they have to charge more. And the reason for this is because illustrators are so underpaid. So uh, we want. You know what happened to me not very long ago? I'm kicking myself because this project I'm finishing up. Someone came to me for a quote, and I quoted him a crappy number, and he took me up on it. So now I've got a job that I'm (laughs) presenting that I named my price. So how much do you owe him? Why did you do that to yourself? (laughs) I'm I'm never going to do that again. Why do we do that to ourselves? Was rates similar to what I was used to getting, and I thought that won't be too hard. But it turned out it still takes a lot of ideas and a lot of thinking. And now I'm... It's tough, man. We do this to ourselves. We put up with this. Why do we have such low collective self-esteem as illustrators? Here's what it is: you can put the you can put the you know the kid in the ghetto, but you can't get the ghetto out of the kid. We've been <laughs> we've been in a we've been in like, this low-paying market for at least uh, my experience is I've been in this low-paying market for so long that I couldn't even tell you half the time what would be a fair rate yeah. for are something. We, are, we, are we not skilled craftsmen? Do we not deserve to get paid as much as a plumber? I'm, you know, I have a college degree and 15 years experience. I should be, <laughs> we should be doing just fine. Yeah, theoretically. Oh man. So I'm, I'm part of the problem. I'm sorry. I'm trying to change, but it's hard. Oh, we are all part of the problem. I mean, 
even probably the people who are starting Art Pact have been at one point in their lives part of the problem, but at least now they're recognizing the problem and helping with the solution. I mean, who among us has not taken a lowball rate because we needed the money? True. Or because we didn't know any better. I, I will be the first to admit that when I dived, when I dove into the illustration industry, I went by, you know where I got my idea of what the industry standard was? RPGNet. Oh! Yeah, yeah. I, I, I went to RPGNet. I saw what people were charging, and that was what I charged. Oh. And, and I kept going doing that for a long time. And I thought, you know, $300 per page was a decent page rate. And yeah. And I, I kept charging that even after my work became far too complex and time consuming for that to be uh, even remotely cover my time and materials. You know, when oh, I first yeah. started, I don't think I. When I first started, I don't think I even ca- accounted for materials because... I don't think I, your, material, your materials count either. Don't worry. Hmm? I don't think of your materials as counting either. You don't, you don't think my materials count? <laughs> no. no. A pen nib? What? That's not even materials. Come on. No, no. You know, you know that a pen, a pen nib doesn't seem like a really big... Exp- like so, If you're drawing with a pen on a piece of paper... You so could car, laugh. so you car. Could laugh at you that. try maintaining a palette of colors, all right? <laughs> None oh, of this. You, you oh, I had to buy a box of pen nibs. You can laugh at pen nibs as a legitimate business expense, but <laughs> you spend, <laughs> you spend dollars on pen nibs. Every try year. a few ounces Dollar. of cadmium red, my friend. Oh, Cerulean blue. You think about it. A pen, one pen nib is a dollar. I buy about fifty a month. <laughs> so so I I have paid fifty dollars for pen nibs in a month. The paper I use is also fairly expensive. Um, it's not the most expensive paper there is, but it's quite nice paper. Uh, it has a good color to it that I like. And you know, then there's other stuff you buy like ink cleaner. You buy the pen holders, which you know they get clogged up with ink. You have to replace them. Uh, you, you buy you you buy a few other colors of ink. I do have red and white ink as well. You know, I don't just have black. <laughs> they, they scatter the light nicely when she puts them in the window. <laughs> Bite me. <laughs> and recently, I'm considering buying a new desk because my current one is giving me horrible back pain. The desk I have my eye on is twelve hundred dollars. Can't you just so, fashion a new desk out of duct tape? Yes, that is what I do. I work on a duct tape desk. Just lots of duct tape. For any artist, there's going to be some overhead. I mean, when I did digital art, I thought, oh, there's no overhead. But then I thought, wait a minute, how much did I pay for Photoshop? How much was my computer? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you, I guess you buy a Wacom pad every couple of years when you break your, occasion, you break your existing one. It's maybe probably a bit less overhead than traditional art, but... For any artist, you know, there's studio space, there's whatever your whatever your cost. There's there's going to be some costs, so you have to work out exactly mm. how much you're making. And when I worked out exactly how much I was making after materials, space, and uh, you know, time and and so forth, it was something like two dollars fifty cents an hour. Yeah. So, I like a waitress could make more in the United States. I think I think so the question some folks need to be asking is not so much not oh the I mean, making these decisions on pricing is 
it's not just the kind of work you want to get, but at the same time, how much do you actually want to earn? And you did, I think having that, having that goal and, make, and working towards it, you know, how much do you actually want to earn off this piece? Not just how much is it worth to this publisher, but how much would you like to earn for? What would make it worth your while? And I think that's probably the question I'm learning to ask myself more and more. I than, think, and we, we all have to start doing it too. I mean, you know, if publishers become, you know, if they, if they come to us and we say, and we quote, say, okay, $500, and then they go mm-hmm. to some other guy who does something quite similar to us, and he says, okay, I'll do it for what you're offering, and what they're offering is $200. You know, that is, that's not good, because mm-hmm. then they go to the $200 guy, and maybe he, does, maybe he does a good job. I mean, back when I was undercharging horribly, I was not doing a horrifyingly bad job. So, you know, I did have people who would come back to me over and over, and you know that 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 it really does hurt people who are especially I mean especially look at Jeremy now he's got a new addition to his family he's got to earn more money, so so if only there was some way to get all artists together and decide, okay this is what is going to cost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that that uh, we can't wait for that. Some of us are just going to have to take it on the chin by saying no, I can't do it for that. I won't do it for that. Yeah, I think, and you know, some of us are doing it. I've started doing it. I've seen some other people doing it. With um, there was a post on the Art Pact Facebook about it recently, uh, and there was mixed response to it. You know, some people were saying, "Yeah, I, I raised my prices and it worked really well, and now I'm earning more money." Yay! And other people came up and said, "Oh, that didn't work. I lost some clients." And then I think someone, some people came and said they had a mixed bag and. I came by and said, I wish we could make everybody start doing this. Damn it. Why is it so much like hurting crap? Price fixing is illegal because it works. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wish there was some, you know, there was some a minimum that, that people would, uh, p- people were aware of in the industry. <laughs> well, the, uh, the uh, in, in real illustration you know there is because uh, we're, we're sort of the ghetto of uh, uh, fantasy science fiction illustration but for real general interest illustrators you know you look at the uh, uh, illustrators guild uh, artist guild handbook is that what it is the graphic artist guild graphic artist guild pricing, pricing and ethical, and ethical guidelines, guidelines. trust yes. me no matter so, what no no it's trust me it's not just the fantasy sci-fi ghetto although that does exist it is every branch every market of illustration has some people who are working for way below the going rates yeah, that's, children's no, that's books and uh, editorial illustration we have a lot more pound for pound. Oh yeah, I mean, in some in some areas of illustration, it's way worse than others. Because I think in some in some respects, the standards are a lot lower. You have to admit, you'll you'll open up some oh, yeah, yeah. applications, and you'll find you know garbage that you wouldn't find even in the lowest tier of a lot of things. So, in some respects, it's because the publishers are willing to put up with a lot of garbage, and that sort of lowers everything. You know a uh, uh, an overall malaise, you know. Obviously, the highest levels in our 
in our area are as high or higher than any other form of illustration, but the lows are pretty darn low. Yeah, and there's some there's some markets which have a very low bar barrier to entry, and uh, mm -hmm. I, I I I can't think of a solution really because. People, you know, they're going to want to buy role-playing game stuff, and people are going to want to publish it. And uh, but you know, nowadays there's less, there's becoming less and less excuse for for you know paying, settling for a bad illustrator and paying a bad rate, because this is the age of Kickstarter. So you can find out in advance if people want to buy what you're selling by mm -hmm. using crowdfunding. And if if you go through crowdfunding and you don't get funded, maybe you know there wasn't that big a market for your role playing setting in the first place. Maybe you don't really need to do that one. Maybe it's time for you to go back to the drawing board and think of something people actually want, and then you can pay a good illustrator a good price. And I know that this is kind of harsh on people on the lower end, but maybe people who are on that low end don't really need to be in the business yet. I mean, I could have been, ben I could have benefited a lot in terms of embarrassment anyway, from if I had not got any jobs for a year after the time when I actually did start getting jobs. <laughs> <laughs> now, this, this is has, has turned into an interesting parallel that goes along very well with the Drawn Today podcast episode of the Art Pact panel uh, from Illuxcon, from this past Illuxcon. We're saying a lot of the same things that Todd and Randy and Aaron and Jim were all saying. We are? So Yes, so if any of our audience Sorry. hasn't heard that, no, any of our panel what? members haven't heard that. I recommend. I wasn't plagiarizing. Uh, I haven't well, heard it. I haven't I, heard I it yet. Parallels. Well, oh I yeah. Didn't say. Okay. That was an I, interesting path. I, I just wanted to say, in case any of them were listening, I wasn't plagiarizing. I I didn't mean to steal your um. Oh, well, you know, in a case. <laughs> Frankly, I don't. I don't. I doubt they care. Nope. <laughs> I think in a case like this, the more people that start saying it, yeah. The better. Well, they want as many people talking about it as possible. Yeah, we need we need more people to talk about it because you know there's always a kind of an angry backlash against it, and this usually comes from artists who were in the position that we were ten years ago. I remember being part of the angry backlash at one point, like uh, an, a very experienced uh, illustrator who is also kind of irascible was yelling at a bunch of us when Epilogue.net was still a thing for charging. Basically, I think two or three hundred dollars a page for uh, fantasy artwork, and some illust this illustrator I won't name his name, but he was yelling at us, and a bunch of us I think it was a couple of us who are actually here today were yelling at him and telling him these are the industry standards. We are professionals, and what do you care? You're not our competition, and we. <laughs> but the thing is that now we are his competition. We're we're you know we're sort of we're doing the jobs now that that he was doing back then, and uh, you know the rates for those jobs haven't improved in the last ten years. We might notice. So now we're the ones who are like, what have we done? <laughs> and uh, so so we we need to. The more people are saying this, the better, because when it's just one angry old artist yelling. <laughs> then then it tends to be the people who are like, so what if I want to charge a little bit of money just for the art I do for pleasure? This isn't my main source of income. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any idea how selfish you sound right now? And, well, here's the thing. I think some people, and I, I, I can be guilty of, 
of this, not not giving a thought to this early on. And that, I think, is publishers don't get into business just to stay in business. They get in, well, yeah, they get I mean, in the business to, to make money and to earn a yeah. living. And that was something I wasn't giving enough of a uh, – really, it was not giving enough of a priority to. You know, it was it was for me. It was very much early, certainly I early think on. A lot you know. of, of, especially when we started, there were a lot of micro press RPG publishers who weren't in it for business. True. No, True. there's a lot of that. There's a lot of stuff that's really a labor of love for the people who are creating it. You know, I understand they want to do a labor of love type thing, but uh, you know, there there are limits to what you can expect someone else to do for your labor of love. It's one, thing, it's one thing if you get together with a bunch of your friends, some of whom are artists, and a lot of you work together on something that you love and you don't really expect to make a profit. You just want to do it to do it. And, you know, if one of you makes money, all of you do. If none of you make money, none of you do. That's a completely mm-hmm. different thing from saying, okay, I'm going to start a press now. I'm going to call it uh, Ugly Dragon Press. And, well, here's the know, question, Mark. Are when, they re- yeah. when Triking Games... Uh, had stopped paying their artists. They were doing the anachronism game and, and burned a lot of their artists. Um, one of the the guys in charge of the company sent an email out uh, to the, to the artist, happy that he had used our money to buy his partner out so he could keep control of his company, which was his dream. <laughs> and what are you saying? And everybody uh, first stood up say and anything saying, "Kind or gracious." After that. I, <laughs> I, I think I, I I think the next thing that that person would hear from me is well not from me but from collections agent. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that is that is um, really <laughs> really beyond the pale and and you know it's really hard it's really hard to shout at people who are just wanting to do something they love and but and you can see it from their point of view but from the other point of view my rent is twelve hundred dollars a month I mm. need that. I I mean if I get evicted from here, I don't know where I don't know what's going to happen to me. You know I I I need a certain amount of money to stay healthy and alive and so forth. And and you know some people have even worse commitments than me. They've got children. They've also got depending on them. And uh, you know some people you know people say oh you know I hate to be harsh but. We're we're in an economy now where nobody gets to have the same career their whole life. You have to expect to have to go back to work or go back to the drawing board. And, you know, if illustration isn't paying your entire wage, you should go into the service sector, get a waiter job. Okay, yes, maybe you can do that if you're able-bodied. What about if you can't work anywhere but home? Then what are you going to do? You think I could take a waitress job? Can you imagine? It, takes, it would take me like 20 minutes to get from the kitchen to your table. Your food would be cold. If you want me to be your waitress, okay, but uh, I don't think you do. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've gotten to the point where I, I'm not really interested in funding anyone else's dreams. Um, I'm, I, that's, no. that's, that can be noble in its own way, but I, I have to buy into that dream myself. And uh, I'm not seeing too many compelling arguments. I think... I've got I dreams get, of my own, <laughs> so I got to. I'll, sort of, I'll give people money on yeah, Kickstarter occasionally, sure. but you know, if somebody asks me to to do an art for their Kickstarter, 
without paying me unless it's funded and like no that's that's where i'm coming at it you know and, and having just uh, basically being willing to work for these for pennies on the dollar that's that's also another form of uh, financing somebody else's dream is let's face it yeah artwork is not cheap and the only reason it's uh it's doable for many of these publishers is that we have essentially subsidized their publishing venture by going uh, lowballing our rates and giving them more money. We are effectively leaving money on the table for them to scoop back and use on their dream. So what do we do to uh, make our businesses better? We can't just demand things from publishers, especially no. from micro presses who don't have it. To, what, what can I think we, we do with to, our art? What should we do with our art? I think we have to yeah. take a, a several-pronged approach. I mm -hmm. mean, we have to, A, work to get illustration taken more seriously as art and get our work into in not only... Uh, into publications but into galleries and we have we need a lot more visibility for us and our artwork mm -hmm. for one thing and um we need a lot we need to educate as many people as possible on why they should be charging more and and how they can do that um i think the barrier of entry in certain uh in certain fields, also needs to be raised quite significantly, and I don't know how us, but we as illustrators, can go about making that happen. Well, well <laughs> I, I can. My answer to that question is one that doesn't doesn't make demands of anyone of a publisher or an industry. For me, it's for me, it's take your work in a more lucrative direction, and as publishers, as the, as the well of talent the publishers have access to becomes a little bit more competitive. But that, that's, a, that's another prong of the yeah, many prong yeah, approach. Yeah. They, One thing I was reading lately is that the artists and illustrators who are making the most nowadays are not the ones who are staying within the industry and working for publishers. They are the ones who are cashing in on their own intellectual properties. Yep. And, you know, in this day of Kickstarter and... Um, and crowdfunding and you know indiegogo and all that type of stuff any illustrator with a good idea can can give it a give it a whirl and if if your if your idea has legs and you work your butt off to promote it i mean you can't just put it up there and people will come even if you have a good idea you really need to beat feet and and get people looking at it but you know if you if you go out there and and try to work up your own intellectual property artists should definitely be encouraging each other and and banding together to do things like this together and uh, and showing other people it can be done because if we start making lots of money off our own intellectual property you know as collectively as a group um, then the industry will have to follow with their pricing because otherwise you know well we're making we're making plenty of money all by ourselves why do we need you well, well, look at it this way. You know, you look at guys like um, I'll just draw another. You know, so you look at guys like Brom. They take their work into another market, and they're doing quite well. Now, if the publisher, if an RPG publisher would like Brom's work in their book, they have to. They want the work of his caliber. They're going to have to pay for it because he's not going to be wooed back to them for you know three hundred, six hundred dollars a page. If they really yeah, exactly. desperately want his work, they'll pay for it. And I think if you, as an illustrator, were to take your work into more lucrative markets, if the person, if the market remains for you and they really want your work, they'll pay for it. They'll pay what you feel it is worth. 
you know, mm-hmm. within obviously within negotiated reason, but you know, that's between you and you, know, you and the publisher. But my point is, if more artists are willing to uh, are able to leave this nest and mm-hmm. make strike out into more uh, lucrative waters, then these smaller publishers if, or these other this, this market, if it really wants the talent that it needs to create books, they'll have to raise their rates to woo people back. Now, yeah. I want to make sure that that uh, Sokar and Patrick hear one of the most important things, I think, from that panel sure. uh, uh, at IllisCon, and that was from John Shindahedi, and uh, he's on the recording, so I'll, I'll just mm-hmm. say he said it also. Uh, there, there's another art director who, who echoed the sentiment, and that was that he has tried to raise the rates for his illustrators, but when he goes to his bosses, his bean counters, as he called oh, yeah, I mean, um, the, there's, there, yeah, there's no leverage to do it because he's getting all of his art filled. We're not. We're not blaming art directors. No, we're not blaming no. People, we're not blaming the cogs in the machine. I'm not saying, hey, John Shindahedi. No, no, no. no. But, but I'm. <laughs> I'm saying, you know, you're, you're using a, a broad, very vague sort of publishers thing, and uh, yeah, pub- publishers. The art directors work for publishers. Yeah. Well, I think part of the problem also is that it was. I think what was it? Um, was the art director from Fantasy Flight was saying that there was no metric that she could bring to her bosses to prove that artists want better rates, better contracts. So a tool like Art Pact, where publishers are being rated on their performance, that that's a metric that they can say, look at how we are rated within, our, within you know, this demographic. These artists who we do business with are displeased with their relationship with us on these grounds. Now, if we really want to maintain the highest quality for our products and we want the largest pool of talent possible, we will have to address these things according to the metrics provided by Art Pact, for instance, as an example. I think the, the internet is sort of a mixed blessing for us. Um, and, you know, artists are taking a while to adapt to it because uh, on the one hand, it gives us the opportunity to use stuff like uh, Kickstarter and finance our own projects with crowdfunding but on the other hand you know it encourages a lot of stuff that we have been seeing a lot of pop up lately where you know people are are, who aren't really professional artists at all are nonetheless encroaching on our markets and you know talented hobbyists are charging a fraction of what a professional artist charges (laughs) for a comparable product and they they are just fine with this because they don't need the money and uh we we can complain about them, but again, they are not really the enemy. They're kind of part of what there's some. They're kind of an unavoidable cancer that's going to creep in because, well, the internet's out there and there's no taking it back. So we need to figure out how to use the tools, use these tools to our own advantage. Figure out how do we monetize our product in such a fiercely competitive and and diffuse age for our industry and part of it is being taken more seriously as artists part of it is creating a demand for what we do which uh, uh, people who are uh, which only we can fulfill and uh, it takes a lot of skills that most artists don't have like self-marketing and uh, you know aggressive promotion I mean I've been noticing more and more that uh, uh, aggressive self-promotion is almost a prerequisite to success nowadays. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's 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 kind of sad be, um, because a lot of creative people uh, haven't been taught to do that. 
I'm not saying we don't have the capacity. I'm sure we do. It's uh, we we have not been taught to do that kind of thing. And I've noticed. Um, it was just well, no, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to jump <laughs> in. You can you can circle that back around to <laughs> building fan base, uh, having fans, yeah, and getting support yeah. from them. Mm-hmm. You don't. You we don't need publishers. Yes, we need our we do, we fans are very important to us and uh, I don't know it's 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 kind of sad that my my sister and I went into business uh, she started an illustration agency uh, and she's representing me now and in a few weeks she's um, I pretty much exceeded my own efforts at promoting myself like exponentially and it's kind of embarrassing that uh, someone who's not even an artist has done that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it makes it, it really it really wipes the point in my face though that in this in this day of an age of social media and internet presences and you know everything just being out there and competition being so fierce, um, self promotion and uh, interaction with fandom and and all that kind of stuff it's a necessary skill set for artists. You can't just be artists sitting in your living room drawing at your drawing table late into the night and expect to be successful. You have to be your own biggest advocate or hire somebody to do it for you if you're lazy. <laughs> well, I think what I think the point Drew is pointing out is that we can very much be our own publishers in this day and age. We can create our own projects, our own intellectual properties. Yes. And, and, and so Carr talked about that with Kickstarter. Yeah. And, yeah. So we're not dependent on other people. But then again, I mean, it, it, we are if we don't want to market ourselves. Yeah, yeah exactly. We need, to, we need to kind of, uh, we need to sort of take a bit of responsibility ourselves in that direction. We, we can't just blame, you know, low-end publishers. We can't just blame talented amateurs and hobbyists and, and people who don't know any better. We can't, we can't rest. And, we, and we, you know, we can't just blame, you know, competitions and things that uh, exploit naive artists and uh, yeah. take their intellectual property for next to nothing. I mean, all these things are part of the problem, definitely. But we also have to take responsibility for our own success within the industry, our own continued survival and take matters into our own hands. And uh, if we want to be able to, at some point, turn around to uh, the publishers that we want to work with and say, uh, no, these are the prices, we need something to back us up. We need to be able to say, well, I'm in high demand because this is what I did here. And these are the thousands of fans that I have behind me that will buy your product with me in it. And that is why this is the price. But right now, um, a lot of us, all we have is, well, this is the price because that's what it will cost me to earn minimum wage or a little more well, from yeah, doing your assignment. I, and that's th- not a very compelling argument. No, I think the ultimate the ultimate power you have, if you really want to affect a, a, a change for the better in your own career, is the ability and the willingness to say no. That's the only way you can really negotiate. That's the ultimate bargaining chip. You can say no. And... If you don't, if you, you, the only way you can have the power to say no, I say I think, is to pres- provide yourself with alternatives. You know, as you point out, we've all taken jobs that we for the low pay because we really didn't have a choice. And the only way to affect that is to give yourself choices. And I think uh, self-publishing is a huge option. Going into mm-hmm. new markets that are a bit more uh, lucrative for you—that's that's a choice. And mm-hmm. if RPGs and tabletop games, what have you, want to become a viable choice, they're going to have to raise their rates. 
in time that would become the reality they'd realize that you, you they're acting you know the the kind of work they're getting is very much at the largesse of the public of the artists who are willing to work with them and if there are fewer artists willing to do it because they've given themselves the option to say no then I eventually wonder, they have to raise their rates i wonder if there's something that could be done to help to help artists go down that road you know to to help artists develop their intellectual properties and uh you know, some kind of resource that could be put together to, to you know, help artists who might not have that skill set to learn what they need to know and point themselves in the right direction. Well, I maybe, think... uh, maybe somebody could, who uh, who knows about business and stuff, could offer some kind of online master class in marketing or something for artists. I don't know, or you know, any kind. Of, I think. I think uh, you you know a lot of a lot of artists need a lot of help in that regard. I didn't even, and you know some of us don't even realize how much help we need until somebody helps us, and then we're like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> why was I not doing this all along? Well, we uh, we typically you know I think the biggest uh, area is not knowing what questions to ask. You know, if that makes sense, you don't know where to begin. And once you have a few questions in hand, then you can start learning. I think that's how. We, but there's, it's kind of like that uh, chicken and egg thing. You don't know what to ask. You don't know there's a, that you're even that there are even questions to be asked. You yeah, know? I mean, at <laughs> so. first, you know, at first you 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 go into it and you're sort of you're desperate because you at the beginning of your career because your income is zero, mm-hmm. and you, you have to start earning something. So you. Uh, you know, you you come flying in like a bat out of hell, and you take the first job as offered, and you you're just happy you're making money, and you don't really realize that you're not really making money until it's too late. It's 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 um, it's yeah. It's, Cheap artwork is an illusion, basically. Cheap artwork is an illusion. And and you know, a lot of people fall into the uh, um, you know, exposure trap. Exposure is not really a currency and yet it's held up as one like uh, a lot of um if you are going to do something for exposure you had better make sure that you are actually getting targeted exposure like let's say um you're you enter a contest to have your okay, contest I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> poor has got to move on up. here <laughs> no, no uh, yeah i've got to go you guys can continue but real life is you know my my schedule it says i need to be downstairs eating dinner Good man. Okay. Yeah, we we should probably wrap well, up. Oh yeah, this here. was the this was to be the last of their topics, so Yeah, but it kept Certainly. going and it, going. it does keep going indefinitely, <laughs> rolling onwards like a juggernaut. <laughs> well it's important. Well, it's a it lot is. to be said. I mean Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Like uh if you uh, if if with the exposure thing, if you see a contest and it says, Oh, get your concept art used in a movie <laughs> Okay, yeah, I'm referring to something specific there, but shame on you guys doing that. Um, anyway, hey, final word is, on that is in my neck of the woods in New England, people yeah. die of exposure every year. So there we go. Move uh, right along. We'll tell you what, um, I, since this turned into such a big uh, topic and I haven't uh, said a word about it and I have a number of things to say, maybe we could uh, get together sometime within less than two months and, <laughs> and do part on. two of this, maybe next week even. I think that yeah. would be uh, admirable. Just, just let me finish the thought before you interrupt again. You had a thought? <laughs> I did have a thought. So, so, so you a very pointed thought. I, was I, saying, I really have to go now. So thanks, guys. It's been thank great. you, Drew, from okay, DrewMaker.com. Drew. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.
Bye. Bye. So what was my thought again? We don't know, but it was a good one. No, no. I yeah. mean, um, if you are, if, if you are going to do something and you are thinking about doing it for only exposure, you had better make sure that is some awesome ass exposure. <laughs> like um, <laughs> if you are doing the concept art and one piece of your concept art can potentially get used in a movie, your name will be like thousandth in a list of a million credits that nobody's going to read at the end of the movie. And you can't even really put that in your curriculum vitae because... Um, the people you'll be showing that CV to are also in the same industry and they'll probably be aware of this thing that you're contributing to and know it isn't an actual real credit. So <laughs> you won't be taking that seriously if you have that in there. So um, on the other hand, I remember there was a contest that showed up in an artist magazine. I think it was actually the artist magazine called uh, in the 1980s or something. And I remember that... I, I entered it because the top prize was something like $5,000, your art on the cover, and a four-page spread about you. And now that would have been some pretty good exposure <laughs> because it's a magazine for artists, so it would be really good for networking. You'd probably have been, heard from a lot of other artists. And, uh, well, at the time, know, it was indeed the artist magazine, so... Yeah, you and, know. you know, it was, it was a lot of money, and, you know, and there would be, like, a four-page spread about you. So, and and the best part was you did not have to create art just for the contest. You just submitted your best work of the year. Now, that would be a contest worth winning because you get a prize and you get some exposure that is genuinely worth having. But most things that you'll get now that are that you see on the Internet, like, oh, yeah, do it for exposure. Trust me, you do not want that kind of exposure. <laughs> it's not worth it. <laughs> But uh, that was my thought. That was my okay. thought. We will definitely resume thought. this conversation. Um, yeah. Because this is clearly a it's a it's a it's a winning topic. Let's put it that way. There's a lot to be discussed about it. I'm sorry about monopolizing so much. I've just uh, been kind of off in a bunch lately because um, I just had to pay my taxes. <laughs> and, well, who isn't up in a bunch at this time of year? Well, the only other thing you can't avoid is death, so you know, be be pleased. Well, you know, when I was doing my taxes, I noticed I made slightly less this year than I made last year, and and that was, um, that was depressing. Wow. No, I understand that pain. I I I feel like sometimes I I look at my tax return every year and it looks slightly smaller than the year previous. <laughs> well, this, this year I had this. This year I had this transitional phase where I quit my day jobs and went into doing illustration full time again. And it took me a few months to start having regular clients coming back over and over again. So, for a few months, there was a big lull in income, and that really affected my yearly income. And uh, it's, you know, things are creeping back up to an even footing now. <laughs> And, and becoming good again, but uh, you know there was a big there was like four months in there where my income was taking a huge hit, and and I was beginning to have some worries about whether taking day jobs for so long had been a huge mistake. Well, it was, but even bigger mistake than I, <laughs> I thought. I, you know, it happens to us. So I all up in a bunch from doing my taxes. Uh, no, I feel your pain, and uh, clearly I have some decisions to make too. 
you know it's and this conversation i think was uh was very helpful to that let's put it that way yeah but uh thank you well, guys for uh, coming in I'll, this week yeah i'll actually say something next time we'll, yeah, that, uh, that'd be good <laughs> Yeah, I'm really, I'm really sorry about just rabbiting on and on and on, sounding really aggressive, which in our misogynist society is considered a very unattractive trait in women. Just think of me as a man, as a very small man. <laughs> a very small man with no penis. With small hands. She has small hands, you know. <laughs> maybe maybe it'll be a bit more palatable to hear me be so aggressive if you just consider me male <laughs> for all the sex I've been getting lately I might as well be Ooh. oh man now my life sounds depressing taxes mm -hmm. and no sex <laughs> sorry that was that was a little over the line I, I, I actually got a nice uh, tax return uh, that just, just came today from the Fed uh, because I had a regular job, like, uh, gosh, eight months last year. And so taxes were being taken out. And so I also had my regular illustration work. And all of that somehow turned out to be, I got a big tax return. Are, are you back to the land of the freelancer? Words, two words for you right now. Can you guess what they are? Um, thank you. Uh Bite me. <laughs> when do I get some money back from the government of Canada? I don't earn very much. They should give me some money. I think I earn less than a teacher. But they're subsidizing and, your health care, so that's, that's good. You can't complain about that. I haven't used any health care this year. The only health care that I've used I had to pay for. Wow. Not, every, not everything is covered in Canada. Dental is not covered. Um, I I need to pay for about twenty thousand dollars worth of dental work. In fact, probably a lot more than that now because more of my teeth are ruined since I got that estimate. And I I don't know how I'm gonna even begin to afford that. So I need to earn an extra twenty thousand dollars this year. <laughs> I wouldn't Ouch. even know how to start doing that. I have no clue. Anybody, anybody listening wants to hire me for really big projects? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'll write two books for you, ten thousand dollars each. <laughs> you know, I uh, it, this really does uh, dovetail into that, and I know we're wrapping up. So next time we'll talk more about the fact that, uh, well, as as you know, I'm I've last uh, two and a half years or so, I've been spending a lot of time doing multimedia again. You know, to bring in extra income without uh, killing myself, uh, going into an early grave just trying to do illustration work. But uh, just so uh, it was something I wanted to mention real quickly, there is a new piece of software out that um, is for animation. And I've been using it for the last uh, about month and a half, and I just love it. It's called Adobe Edge, Adobe Edge Animate. And it is for, it, it's essentially their replacement for Flash. It's doing animation for HTML. And it generates HTML, CSS, and JavaScript from uh, essentially an a animation front end that's a lot like Flash. Actually, it's a little better in some respects. Uh, so just wanted to let everyone know, especially the people who are using uh, the new Adobe Cloud um, mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, um, to to get uh, new versions of uh, the Adobe products like Photoshop, you know, you can uh, subscribe now. Mm-hmm. Um, what do they call it? The Creative Cloud. That's it. So anyone who has that already um, can just download Adobe Edge, but also you can join up with the cloud and uh, Edge is free. So you don't even have to pay for any other products. You can just sign up for that and get Edge and download it and play with it. And I would highly suggest that to anyone who's used Flash as a sideline or even as their main job and hasn't tried it yet to uh, give it a shot because I think that's going to sort of be the wave of the future as less and less call is going to be had for Flash on the web and more and more people are going to want to do just a HTML-only solution. Um, I'd I'd say run out and start learning Edge because it it is a nice little program and I've been doing some great little animations with it. Very cool, Sarah. Thank you for sharing that. I'll I'll make sure we'll we'll put a note and put in the show notes. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't even know about this. Creative yeah, it, it's. Cloud. It, yeah, the the creative cloud. Actually, uh, we were talking a little earlier about uh, you know the hidden costs of doing digital work. One nice thing about the cloud is that you get you're paying every month for um, a subscription to all of the products Adobe makes, so you can get anything at all. You know, if a client says, "Oh, we need something," and blah blah blah, you can grab it, and it's all part of your. A subscription, but it's kind of also nice that you see, you know, every month that money, you know, fifty dollars or so is coming out. <laughs> okay, there was my expense for digital, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it it sort of puts a number on it that might be hidden otherwise. That could uh, actually that could be really you know for people who use a lot of Photoshop and stuff though that could save you money over time because you yeah. have. Because you often have to buy new stuff to go with your Photoshop, like, uh, you know, an upgrade or uh, mm-hmm. a new version. Or you mm-hmm. have to buy, uh, you, you know, some Lightroom thing that goes with it for your camera. But if you were, if you could use anything you wanted for the cloud fee, that would be actually really nice, something I yeah. consider. I also I would mean, actually I mean, a good... I mean, good even good. as a traditional yeah. artist, even as a traditional artist, I would consider that because I've been using uh, the GIMP All for... Right. I've been using the GIMP for like scanning stuff in and uh, you know um, k- keeping track of, of of my files and stuff. And I've preferred Photoshop, but I can't afford just to buy the new Creative Suite outright. That is really a lot of money. It is, but, but then if you do the Creative Cloud, it's just a monthly subscription, and you can get any any product they make. And and it it's constantly updating, so you get the newest versions. I've also I've I attended a um, it was an Adobe presentation uh, several months ago, and one of the benefits of having that subscription is that you'll get the also access to new software that's not ready to be bundled with uh, you know mm-hmm. because not, something about the Adobe uh, production timelines don't allow them to simply release new product. Um, to the market, you know, to the general market, like for sale at stores and what have you. And I'm not mm-hmm. entirely sure why that is the case, but apparently membership in this program allows access immediately to new software that might not otherwise be available for uh, purchase elsewhere. Oh, I didn't realize there was a, a time difference like that. Well, another yeah. good thing then. There you go. That All is right. very nice. Uh, I will definitely have to look into that. And on that positive note... I'd like to thank Soccer Miles. 
at garblamey.com. Patrick McAvoy. I guess you can go to megaflowgraphics.com. And our ever-quiet Kieran Yanner, who is probably at this point swinging a hammer as he works on their new digs. <laughs> like the kids say, he's hey. swinging his hammer. As a, you know, that's what they call it these days, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? You, know, you might not know what I'm talking about, but I think you do. <laughs> And I am Jeremy McHugh, and I can be found at McHughStudios.com. And thank you for tuning in. You can comment on your own fan experiences at NinjaMountain.com and in if you want forums. To, and if, if you want to be my fan, you can send me some food. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. And Sokar loves getting birthday cards. Yeah, even if it's not her birthday, just send her random birthday cards. No. Yeah, anytime of the night. Don't do that. There you go. And... and and moo the Cusick. <laughs> hey, we even got a little bit of music from Sokar. Check that out. Yeah, I, I can't help myself. When he, whenever he says that, I, I, I feel like I need to sing some music out of it.